0: Amen. Thanks, Pastor Paul. Good to have Paul and Bethany on board with us, and they were able to make it out to camp for a few days. Actually, Paul was. He tried to come out for the whole week and actually skip his um, in-laws' family reunion, but his mother-in-law put the kibosh on that. Um, Good try, Paul. Way to try to use foster kids to get out of spending time with your in-laws. Like, we'll address that later. No, I'm just kidding. Kind of. Um, Hey, how's it going? You guys are, I've been like off for two weeks doing kid stuff, kid fest, Royal Family Kids Camp. And um, so it's good to be back with you guys, although I'm still feeling a little bit punchy from being with the, the, the little ones. So you're going to have to put up with me this morning a little bit. Uh, we're going to start our message this morning in a little different way than we have in the past. I actually want to play an audio clip for you of, of one of my favorite... Uh, Like theologians. And this is a guy I just really enjoy and has a lot of great things to say about the Bible. And um, there's this audio clip. There's no video. So you're going to have to kind of just kind of close your eyes and really kind of zone in on the the moment and just listen to the words as we get started with this audio clip. So go ahead and play that and we'll all just sort of think about it.
1: You might be a redneck, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) um, if you've been on television more than five times describing what the tornado sounded like, you might be a redneck. If you've ever cut your grass and found a car, you might be a redneck. If your dad walks you to school because you're in the same grade, you might be a redneck. If you've ever been too drunk to fish, you might be a redneck. If someone has to see your ID and you show them your belt buckle, you might be a redneck. If you've ever had to haul a can of paint to the top of a water tower to defend your sister's honor, you might be a redneck. If your dog and your wallet are both on a chain, you might be a redneck. If every day somebody comes to your door mistakenly thinking you're having a yard sale, you might be a redneck. If you've ever financed a tattoo, three more payments and this long gun is mine, you might be a redneck. If you've ever made change in the offering plate, (laughs) guilty, we got him. If you go to the family reunion to meet women, you might be a redneck. I think we offended somebody out here, That ain't funny, is it, sis? (laughs) And last but not least, if you see a sign that says say no to crack and it reminds you to pull your jeans out, (laughs) you might
0: just be a redneck. As we ponder and reflect on those significant words. No, hey, uh, That'll tie in in just a second. I didn't just play that for fun, although it was fun. Uh, That will tie in in just a minute, but for now I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 1, we're continuing our series here called In the Public Eye. It's our journey with Luke through his gospel and his story of Jesus and who he is and the kingdom that he's come to bring. And in our passage today, as we kind of launch into chapter 6, Luke recalls for us two controversial incidents where Jesus comes into contact and actually collides with the religious leaders of his day, with the with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And for those of you who may not know, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the guys who... Took following God real seriously. These are the guys who everyone else looks to for guidance on how to really live a life devoted to God. And it seems throughout the Gospels, if you read them, Jesus actually has more conflict and and more throwdowns with these guys than anybody else. And, And today, through these moments, through these controversies, Luke is going to warn us of something. You see, Luke is always looking ahead as he tells the story of Jesus. He's always looking ahead. He's always got one eye pointed forward to the church. He's always talking about Jesus, and he's teaching the church something. And here he is warning us. He is warning the church of the constant pull that legalism has on our lives. He he reminds us that Jesus and his kingdom go well beyond rules and regulations, and he cautions us to consider the constant pressure we all face to let our relationship with God slide into nothing more than dead, empty religion. And so this morning, Luke will tell these stories as a way of saying, warning, church warning, do not let this happen to you. And so as we open the word of God today, I want you to know that I have not titled this message, you might be a redneck if, instead, you might be a Pharisee if, you might be a legalist if, your religion might be stale and dormant and dead if. You might be a redneck if, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 1, one Sabbath Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And in Jesus' day, uh, wrote, especially out in the country, out in rural areas, which is where Jesus is. He's up in the northern region of Israel. He's out in Galilee, which is predominantly a rural um, area and a rural community. The roads in this region often ran right next to and right between the farm fields. In fact, fields in ancient Israel were laid out in these long, narrow strips. And between the strips, between the rows, were actually paths that people traveled on. And God, in His provision in the Old Testament... Uh, actually makes a way to provide for folks who are traveling. God has always had a heart for the poor. He has always had a heart for the traveler. And this shows up time and time and time again throughout the Old Testament and then again in the New. This is what God writes in Deuteronomy chapter 23. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain in other words you can't go over and like harvest your neighbor's entire crop but if you're out for a walk if you're traveling down the road and you get hungry you can help yourself to their crop if you just want a little snack if you just you can just grab a handful if you need a handful and this was common practice in jesus day everyone does this and that is exactly what his disciples do here. They have, they're out on the road, they're out on the trail, they are walking someplace, and they get hungry, and so they grab a handful of, of grain, they rub it between their hands to separate the wheat from the chaff, and then they enjoy some nourishment as they go along their way. No problem. Kind of common occurrence. The problem, at least according to some Pharisees who are apparently watching very closely nearby, is that they have picked this grain and rubbed it between their hands on this day called Sabbath. Now, let me just give you a little bit of info about the Sabbath because it kind of sets up this whole controversy between Jesus and the religious authorities in this story that we're looking at now and the next one that we're going to look at here in just a minute. And and Jesus will use these controversies. He will use these Sabbath controversies to, to show us... How to detect pharisaical legalism in our world, and more importantly, in our own lives, minds, and hearts. How can you detect legalism when it starts to grow, when it starts to rear its ugly head, when it begins to well up and take root in your soul? Jesus says, beware. Well, back in Exodus chapter 20, and there's a little section of Scripture back there you might have heard of before. It's called the Ten Commandments. Anyone heard of that? Yeah. Exodus chapter 20, this is verses 8 through 11. This is commandment number 4. So Jesus is going right to the heart of the law. We're right in the center of this thing right now. Commandment number 4. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Well, how do we keep it holy? What does it mean to keep it holy? Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, set it apart, made it different than all the other days, set apart for him. So from the very beginning of time, God models for us and then he sets up this system where for six days work is to be done, but then on the seventh day we are called to rest. The Greek word used for Sabbath here in the New Testament in in Luke's story is the word sabbaton and it literally means to cease. To cease. Another interesting fact about Greek is anytime there's a double B, like a, a BB in the middle of a word, it means that the meaning of that word is intensified. So sabbaton literally means the intense ceasing of work. It's a very simple definition of Sabbath. The intense, not a little break, but the intense all-day complete ceasing of work. And by the way, just so we're real clear, This command of God, this law, like all of God's laws, was given to bless us and protect us from ourselves to protect us, to protect you and me, humanity and creation from our own sinful tendencies. This is the very heart of God, and we see this all throughout His law. He is trying to protect us that we might live and experience the blessed life that He longs for us to live. You see, God knows this about you and me. He knows this about the human race. Sometimes there is going to be this temptation, and maybe you've seen this before, for us to work And then work. And then work. And then work. And then work some more. I don't know. I mean, like, in Jesus' day, people actually struggled with finding and placing their identity in what they did for a living. Their entire identity started to get wrapped up in their work. Can you believe that? There were people in Jesus' day, they would call them workaholics. Hard to imagine, but it happened back then. And... God knows that this is actually not good for the human soul. He knows that our identity needs to be placed in Him. And so He says, once a week on the seventh day, I am calling you not to work. I am calling you to set that aside and to rest and to remember who and whose you really are. Every seventh day. And this again was a command given to protect and replenish and restore us. But, but... The religious zealots of Jesus' day and before, they took this command very seriously, and they they got very intense around it, and they started to ask these kinds of questions. Well, if God does not want us to work on the Sabbath, what does it mean not to work? What actually constitutes work? If God says not to work, what specifically can we do and what can't we do on the Sabbath? And in the process of answering that question, the religious leaders came up with so many rules and restrictions and regulations that Sabbath went from being this day of blessing, this day of replenishment, this day of joy and peace and rest, to the most painful, difficult despised day of the week the people of Jesus' day actually resented and hated the Sabbath day it took so much work to prepare yourself to even survive on the Sabbath day that it was just one more burden for them to carry Now, let me just give you some examples of the rules people faced on the Sabbath. Actually, in the Talmud, this book they they wrote to kind of explain the law of God and flesh out what the Bible really said, there are 24 chapters of the Talmud that are filled with Sabbath regulations. 24 chapters. Believe that? I'm just going to give you a few. Here's a few. You couldn't carry anything on your person that weighed more than a dried fig. Kind of limits it quite a bit. I mean... (laughs) You couldn't eat any forbidden food larger than an olive, and if you put an olive in your mouth and spit it out because it was a bad olive, the Talmud said you couldn't replace it with a good one because your palate, your taste buds, had already done the allotted amount of work they were allowed on the Sabbath. So one bad olive and you're out. If you threw an object in the air, you could catch it with the hand that you threw it with, but not with your other hand. A tailor couldn't carry his needle, a scribe couldn't carry his pen, a pupil couldn't carry his books, nothing could be sold or bought or washed, wool couldn't be dyed, sowing, reaping, threshing, winnowing of any kind was strictly forbidden. One was not allowed to prepare any food, so all food preparations had to be done the day before. And by the way, this is what the Pharisees are calling Jesus' disciples on. By picking the grain and rubbing in their hands to separate the wheat from the chaff, they are saying that Jesus' disciples, in one fell swoop, have broken three laws. They've harvested, they've winnowed, they've prepared food all on the Sabbath. Like, they're out. They've broken the rules. On the Sabbath, an egg could not be boiled, even if you buried it in the hot sand, which, by the way, I learned this week, that's how they often boiled eggs in the desert of Galilee in the summer. They would just bury them in the hot sand, and they would boil over time. You weren't even allowed to do that. You couldn't leave a radish and salt, because it might make a pickle, a pickle, and that would be considered preparing food. No fire could be lit. No fire could be put out. You prayed your house didn't catch on fire. You could, you could put a, a wad of wax in your ear if you had an earache, But you couldn't put in your false teeth. So it was one of those days where a lot of people stayed home, I'm guessing. Um, No false teeth allowed. And so for chapter after chapter after chapter, the rules go on and on and on. You can do this, but not this, and not this, and not this, and you must not do this on the Sabbath. On and on it goes. And now we can begin to see how they just might have started to miss the point a little bit, can't we? The rules intending to help people keep the law have actually started to prevent people from experiencing the goal of the law. The rules put in place to help people keep the law have now like, undermined the goal from the very beginning. Friends, the first sign that you might be becoming a Pharisee, the first clue that legalism is growing in your heart, the first indicator that rules are surpassing your relationship with Jesus is this... Things that were intended by God to be life-giving gifts start to become rigid religious requirements. You might be a Pharisee if things that were intended by God to be life-giving gifts have started to become rigid religious requirements. Let me just ask you this morning, church. Let me encourage you to be real honest with yourself today. Has your Christian faith started to feel more like rules than rest? Is your experience of following and walking with God starting to feel more like a list of things you have to do or a place where your soul gets nourished and refreshed? Has your following of Jesus become a list of obligations instead of a gift to connect with the creator and maker of the universe. Now, before you answer that question too hastily, let me get a little more painfully specific. Prayer. Requirement? Or a connection you look forward to? Do you do you approach prayer the way the Pharisees approached Sabbath, or do you approach it as a glorious gift from God? Serving. Using your unique, individual, God-given gifts as a part of the body of Christ to advance the kingdom of God in this world, is that something you do out of obligation? Or do you see it as a huge opportunity? Time in the Word, feasting on the Scriptures, is that something you check off your list? Is it one more thing you have to take care of for the day? Or is it food and nourishment for your mind? Or taking it even a step farther, giving. The ability to take all that God has provided for you, all that He's given to you, and give back a percentage right off the top 10% or maybe even more to say god it's all from you it's all come from you and i just want to worship you and love you and recognize you by giving this money back is that something you do because of guilt or because of shame or is it done with gratitude and thankfulness in your heart you see friends you might be a pharisee you might beyond the road to legalism, if things that were intended by God to be life-giving gifts have started to become rigid, religious requirements, and all of a sudden the Pharisees don't seem as far away from us as they did a few minutes ago, do they? At least they don't for me. Some of the Pharisees asked, "'Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath?' Jesus answered them, verse 3, "'Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry?' He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. So we're kind of flashing back to the Old Testament now. In the Old Testament, and specifically Leviticus chapter 24 to be exact, God gives the Israelites some instructions for worship. And he tells them this, he tells them, in the center of the tabernacle, the place of worship, the kind of central worshiping place for the entire nation, in one of the center rooms of the tabernacle, he instructs them to place a golden table. And this was the part of the tabernacle where only the priests were allowed to go. And on this golden table, every Sabbath, the priests were to put out 12 freshly baked loaves of hot bread in two rows, one row of six and another row of six. And this bread was called, does anyone know? The show bread or the bread of the presence. Yeah, good job, Mike. Um, And the symbolism of this was was that God is telling them, my presence is with you, my people, and I am the one who will provide for you. I am the one who will sustain you. I am the giver and maintainer of your lives. God is telling them, I am going to provide for you. I am going to provide for all 12 tribes. He is the one that will nourish and sustain them. And according to Leviticus 24, the old bread, after seven days, it's on the altar seven days, and then it comes off and 12 new loaves go on. And the old bread that came off, off of the table, it was bread that was consecrated to God. And so it couldn't be just treated like Any old normal bread. You couldn't just like offer it to any common person. Leviticus 24 says that only the priests are allowed to eat eat this bread. And some of you may be thinking, well, why in the world would you want to eat seven day old bread anyway? No big loss. Well, this is like that, like flat bread, like unleavened bread. And actually in the climate of Israel, it would just dry out and it would become a lot like a cracker, like a saltine with no salt. So it wasn't really even that bad after seven days, but only the priests were allowed to eat it. Well, now we come to 1 Samuel chapter 21, and we find this story of David, this story that Jesus references and harkens back to in our passage today. And David, he's a grown man at this point, Uh, the whole, like, sheep-watching and fighting the lion and the bear and taking on Goliath in front of the entire nation, that's all in his past right now. He's already been anointed king by Samuel, but at this point... In David's life, Saul is still ruling the nation, and Saul is actually hunting David down to kill him in order to protect his throne. So David and his friends, David and his guys, they are on the run. They are fleeing for their lives. And in this particular instance, David and a few of his guys, they are on the run, and they come to this place in Israel called Nob. And Nob was this little town right on the edge, just outside of Jerusalem. And it's where the tabernacle was. And so David and his guys, having been fleeing for their lives, they go down to the tabernacle. David goes down to the tabernacle. He talks to the priest and he says, we've been fleeing for our lives, me and my guys, and we are starving. We are hungry. Can we get some bread? And the priest is like, well, dude, this ain't a bakery. We don't have any bread here. The only bread we have here is The showbread, the bread of the presence. And we both know only the priests are allowed to eat the showbread. So I have this conversation, David and the priest, and after kind of justifying their decision, the Bible tells us that the priest gives David some of the consecrated bread. He gives David the bread of the presence. The bread that symbolizes God's provision for his people is offered to him in this moment. And in our passage today, Jesus references back to this moment in order to say this, in order to tell the Pharisees, hey guys, how silly would it have been for God not to provide for David because of the religious ritual meant to remind David that God would provide for him? Like, that would be... That wouldn't make any sense at all, would it? So even David understands. In other words, Jesus says, even David understands that the ultimate goal of the religious practice is more important than the practice itself. I'm going to say that again because it is very significant. The ultimate goal of the religious practice is more important than the practice itself. Now, I want to point something out to you here because some of you in this room are rules people. I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but you know who you are. You really like rules. You like when rules are in place and they're enforced, and I am not one of you. I do not like rules, so I love this story. There's other stories I struggle with, but this one is for me. Okay? in this story, some of you are going to look at this and you're going to try to find a way to still make it so that Jesus is just following the rules. And I am not going to let you. Let's read verse 4 together again. Read this with me. He entered the house... Are we going to read together? Okay, here we go. Let's try it again. One, two, three. He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. Now, notice here what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't tell the story and then sort of, you know, like create a loophole. He doesn't say, you know, it really wasn't against the law in this case. He doesn't say there's some confusion around this religious practice and David actually gets it right. No, Jesus doesn't say any of that. He actually goes out of his way to point out in this moment, David broke The law. He did not follow the rules. And the reason Jesus does this, I believe, is because he wants us to understand that the goal of religious law, the goal of our religious practices, the goal of any religious rules or rituals that we hold to are always more important than the practices themselves. We must always remember why we're doing what we're doing. It's important for Jesus remember he says why you're doing what you're doing do not lose the forest for the trees you see one of the big things jesus teaches us in this passage is he wants us to understand where it is that true rest is actually found he says you guys you pharisees You teachers of the law, you are so caught up in searching for rest in the Sabbath rules and regulations that you have missed the fact that the one who actually provides ultimate Sabbath rest for your heart and souls is standing right in front of you. You're worried about the rules and God in the flesh stands right before your eyes and you're nitpicking over grain and winnowing and threshing and preparing food. Do you see The irony of this moment? Jesus wants us, church, to understand without a doubt that rest for our souls has, can, and never will come from simply following Sabbath regulations and rules. True rest, Jesus says, real rest, soul-filling rest, can and will only come from the one to whom the Sabbath rules point. And then boldly and brashly, in a way only Jesus can, he tells them exactly who that is. He says, in case there's any doubt, I want you to know who I am, verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man, that's the way he refers to himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. Let me ask you this, church does your spiritual life center on and focus on and intentionally lead you to Jesus? Because you might be a Pharisee, you might be on the road to legalism or lifeless religion if your spiritual practices have started to become an end in and of themselves. You do things for God, but they never quite connect you to God. You've got all these rules and regulations and practices and things you do, but they never actually tie your life and heart and mind and soul back into Jesus. You have lost the forest for the trees. Again, let me just give you, uh, hopefully, a helpful and possibly a little bit painful practical example. Church, do you come to church on Sunday morning with the intention of our time together leading you into a deeper connection with Jesus? Is that why you come? Is that what you expect? Is that what you're looking for when you show up in the lobby on Sunday morning? I mean, not it used to be that 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 20 years ago. That's what church used to be to me. That's not it. What is it now? Do you show up looking to connect with Jesus? Do you show up saying, this experience, this practice, this habit, this routine that I'm in is worthless unless it helps connect me back to Jesus. Maybe you just do it out of habit maybe you just come because that's what you do maybe guys you come because your wife makes you feel guilty friends if it's just a religious routine that never connects you with god then i'll be as bold to say as to say it means nothing friends religious routine is of no value unless it leads you to Jesus. Religion for religion's sake. Sabbath laws for Sabbath laws' sake. Church for church's sake is not what God has ever wanted or longed for His people. There's so much more. Do not miss the goal because you got stuck just doing the practice. Jesus says, remember who is Lord of every single religious practice you'll ever engage in. Of all the commandments, friends, which is the most important, Jesus is asked. The most important one, he answered, is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Everything we do should lead us back to this. It all centers, it all balances, it all comes back to that. That's why we've got it stenciled on our walls in this very room. Luke continues for us in verse 6, and we move on to the next story. On another Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. You might be a Pharisee if you constantly find yourself being critical. A significant clue that legalism has started to take root in your heart is this. The primary lens you see the world through is one of judgment, evaluation, and critique. How many Christians do you know that fit that description to a T? It's heartbreaking, really. They look around and they see everything in the church and everything in the world and all they do is complain and moan and gripe and judge and evaluate and critique. And friends, I just have to say, that is not the heart of God. I could go on and on about this, but I'll just simply say this. Let's not be that church, friends. Let's commit together that we will help one another and I need your help. I told the first service, I need your help too. Because have you ever met a real cynical, bitter pastor? They're out there, and it ain't pretty, and I do not want to be one. If you see me starting to get cynical or judgmental or critical, if you start to experience that in me, you tell the elders on me. They will pummel me, and I give them permission to do so. We do not want to be cynical, critical Christ followers. Those two things do not go together. That is not the result of the Spirit of God actively living and filling our lives. Let's not be that kind of church, friends. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be discerning, that we should kind of embrace everything that comes our way. That is certainly not the message. But let's continue to discern with the spirit of love and grace and mercy and hope instead of embracing the hypercritical negative spirit of the Pharisees. It has no place here. But Jesus knew, verse 8, what they were thinking, and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Now, this might be my favorite part of the story. I love the the combative spirit here from Jesus. I love the fact that he refuses to back down, and he just stands up and takes on the spiritual leaders. You know, Jesus kind of gets this rap sometimes of always just being the nice guy, you know, he never goes after people. He goes after the spiritual leaders here. They come to him and say like, we're just waiting to see if you will heal on the Sabbath because we're going to nail you. And he goes, you want to see if I can heal on the Sabbath? I'll show you. Hey, do with the shriveled hand, come on down, stand up front. I want everybody to see this. Tell me Jesus isn't planning a throw down here. He's about to put it up in their face. And maybe his attitude isn't quite as swaggy as mine, but I certainly think he's got some fire in him. Um, You think I should heal on the Sabbath? You guys, I made the Sabbath. I own the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'll show you what happens on the Sabbath. You know, it's just this great, like, fire in him. He just, the indignation he has for just empty, dead religion just fuels me. Don't you just love it? I love it. Anyway, this pastor friend of mine, um, this is a great story. This pastor friend of mine had a little girl, and when she was just about five years old, she learned to ride a bike. And this particular little girl just loved riding her bike. She just fell in love with her bike, and all she wanted to do was ride her bike. And so every day out in front of their house, she would ride, like, up and down the sidewalk, like, back and forth, back and forth, all day. And one day, the pastor came home from work, and the wife was there, and she said, Honey, I'm loving the fact that your daughter is, you know, enjoying her bike, but the boundaries for her on that bike... Like, she's just like blowing way past. She's going way up the street and way down the street, and I can't see her anymore. And, you know, there's cars backing out, and I'm just really worried about her. I need you to go out there and kind of reestablish her bicycle riding boundaries again. So the dad says, okay, and he goes out to his little five year old daughter, and he says, honey, I'm thrilled that you're like killing it on this bike. Great job. But here's the deal we need you to be a little more safe. Your mother and I need to make sure you're safe. And so, We need to reestablish the boundaries. So when you go this way up the street, you can only go to the mailbox. When you go down the street this way, I need you to, like, not go past the big tree there. So those are your boundaries. You cannot go past those boundaries. And if you do, I'm going to have to punish you. Like, there's going to be some, you know, retribution. I'm going to have to, like, spank your little hiney. And so the little girl standing there with, like, her bicycle in her arms kind of looks up the road, the mailbox, and then she looks back down the sidewalk at the the big tree and she looks up at her dad stares at him for a minute kind of turns and sticks her rear out and says well spank me now because I'm going riding (laughs) that is a true story and and you know I kind of feel like Jesus has that same determined spirit here like the Pharisees are like no 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 you're not allowed to heal on the Sabbath and Jesus is like well spank me now because I'm going riding people here we go you know you don't think I can heal on the Sabbath? Then Jesus said to them... You know, it's great is he pulls this guy up front, withered hand, and it's like he's not even paying attention to him. I'm sure that Jesus loves him and has compassion for him and wants to you know, heal his life and restore him and all this stuff. But it's almost like he's a side character because he's, he's just like looking at the crowd. It's like, I'm about to make a statement here about what my kingdom's about, about what's acceptable when you follow me and not and who I am. And so he looks at the crowd... I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. Now just think about this moment. The right hand in Jesus' culture was the primary hand. Sorry to all you lefties out there, but that's just how it worked. The left hand was used for sort of other things, things I won't mention from the pulpit. But the right hand is the hand you use to do most of your business with. And so to have a shriveled and crippled right hand means that this man's life is severely impaired. And now... And now, He has been healed. He has been completely restored. How wonderful. Friends, know this about our God. He longs for people who are broken and hurting and trapped in sin to be set free. That is why He came. And more than anything, God wants us He wants our souls to be connected in Him and rested in Him because He knows a rested soul is a soul that has capacity for mercy and grace that we can never muster up on our own apart from Him. He says, the kind of grace and love that we never see in the Pharisees because they do not connect with me. You can have it. You can... Rejoice and celebrate in the restoring, redeeming power of God in people's lives when your soul is rested in Me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. The second flows right out of it. The second is the result of it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And there you see the heart of legalism. There you see the heart of people who get wrapped up in the rules and miss the one who offered them. Final point for us this morning, friends, is this. You might be a Pharisee if your love for God never translates into a genuine love for people that pushes you to the edge of your comfort zone. Your love for God, you might be a Pharisee, if your love for God never translates into a genuine love for people that pushes you to the edge of your comfort zone, that pushes you to the edge of a neat, clean, safe, comfortable religious experience. You see that was never God's plan to like adopt you as one of his own and fill you with his spirit and then just kind of let you sit comfortably inside your bubble. He longs to push you out of your comfort zone. He these Pharisees, they want no part of that. This man with the shriveled hand on the Sabbath, that is just so far out of their comfort zone. They they won't even touch it with a 10-foot pole and Jesus is right there on the edge. How about you? Let me ask you this this morning, Cedar Mill. got anyone in your life that God is calling you to love on the edge of your comfort zone, are you so filled with the, the, the rest and restoration of God because of your connection with Him that it's just pouring out of you and now you have the courage and the power to step out and meet people like this man and offer them the redeeming, restoring hope and love of Jesus Christ? I guess, maybe to take it a step further, do you even in your life have access to these kinds of people? Or have you insulated yourself, created such a bubble around you, that even if you wanted to interact with people that made you uncomfortable, they're so far away that you can no longer even get to them. Ever feel like that? In suburban Portland? Friends, if you want to get out of your comfort zone and start to interact with people that are different than you, that deal with stuff that you don't deal with, that have struggles that you don't have. If you want to start to build a relationship with those kind of folks and offer them the love of Christ and receive the love of Christ from them, we can help you. We've got people doing this stuff. We've got ministries that are doing these things. Royal Family Kids Camp is not the only one. We're going into the school systems to work with kids that are having trouble. We're adopting apartment complexes and trying to interact with kids who, uh, who don't have mom and dad around all the time Who need to hear about the love of Jesus and, and see it in adults that will spend time and care for them. We're offering shelter and food and clothing and hope and relationship to people who are living in isolation and alone. Friends, when was the last time You found yourself on the margins of your comfortable life loving people for Jesus. Right here in the story, he says, that is what I'm all about. This morning as we close, I want to give you some time. I want to give you some room to do business with God a bit. And maybe it's just around sort of getting God back to the center of your life. Maybe pitching off some religion and getting back to a real relationship where you love God and you're moving towards Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Or maybe it's about some people in your life that God is calling you to love and you've been hesitant. Or maybe it's about just realizing that there are no people like that in your life and you need to start taking some steps forward. I do not know what the Lord has been speaking to you today, but do this, friends. Do not leave this room like a Pharisee the same way you walked in. Do not leave without letting the Holy Spirit change you at least a little for the kingdom and draw you closer to Christ. Spend some time with God. If you do not know what that looks like, just ask Him. I promise He will tell you. We're going to give you some space and I invite you to come forward to one of the tables around you. We're going to share the Lord's Supper together. Take the bread, take the cup. These elements that declare that Jesus' death and resurrection have saved us, redeemed us, that we might be agents of of redemption for God in this world when you're ready come forward take the elements go back to your seat and receive them in your own time I'm going to pray Father thank you for the, the passion and fire of your son I love the indignation he has for for empty religion for legalism God, may that not mark us here as a church. May we be ever moving towards you through what we do as a community and never just settle in and let the practices be the end all for us. So God, this morning, meet us during this time of communion. Help us to remember and declare again who you are and what you've done. That's our prayer. In Christ's name, amen.